You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, before we jump into this week's interview, once again, I am reminding you about our annual audience survey. As you know, we do this every May, and we do this so we can get more information about you to help us to get sponsors, to book guests, and to make Revision Path a better platform and a better podcast overall. So to take the survey, you can go to survey.revisionpath.com and fill it out. There will also be a link to it in the show notes. If you're following us on social media, it'll be, I think for at least this month of May in 2023, it'll be our pinned post at the top of our Twitter timeline. And we'll also make sure to put it in our bio on Instagram as well. So again, go to survey.revisionpath.com. Let us know how you feel. Survey is going to close this year on June the 5th. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Akeem Roberts. Akeem is based out of Brooklyn, New York, and he's a cartoonist and illustrator and a dailies contributor to The New Yorker. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Akeem S. Roberts. I'm a cartoonist for The New Yorker, illustrator for JD, the Kid Barber series, and a book designer by day. How has 2023 been going so far? 2023 has been pretty crazy so far. I started off the year unemployed, just doing freelance stuff. And as of like three weeks ago, I just got a brand new job and sort of getting the reins on that. And everything's been going pretty good. Oh, nice. Congratulations on the new job. Thank you. Do you have any like plans for the summer? Anything you want to do? For the summer right now, I don't have anything planned. I'm sure I'll just like try to go to a beach or like a lake or something and just relax for a little bit. I'm curious, you know, from last year to this year, aside from the, the employment change that you mentioned about, have there been any other kind of changes for you? Anything else going on? I'd say... From last year to this year, I've more committed to like being in publishing versus animation, which was kind of like the main thing that I did at the start of my career was mostly animation. And after I started doing stuff at The New Yorker and stuff with uh, Coquila, I slowly started making to transition into publishing. 
what brought that transition on aside from just more work? Was it a, a feeling or anything? I felt like for animation, mostly it was things move a little bit slower and it feels like the artists, I guess I was a cog in the machine animation wise while like publishing, even though I am still just like in the machine, I have like a little more of a voice and a little more of a say. And I guess it just feels more freeing. Sounds like there's just more, I guess, agency, I guess, in publishing. Yes, exactly. Okay. Let's talk about some of your work that you're doing as a freelance illustrator. I'm curious, like, what does a regular day look like for you these days? If I'm doing dailies for The New Yorker, I'll try to get up around like seven o'clock and then hit Twitter or like some kind of news source and just like go through trending (laughs) and try to see what's going on, what's like what happened in the past 24 hours. And then I'm seeing if I can like find a joke and connect that into a bit for The New Yorker for their daily cartoons. So you're like creating new new pieces every day so you have to like check the news be like oh this is funny draw something and then it's just it's just done that's it it depends on the process so sometimes for instance i got one in for a daily after the trailer of the barbie movies dropped Mm -hmm. so like for that i had like an idea of doing something of scientists trying to get to the barbie movie because there was all those memes about like people saying three, how many or whatever for Barbie movie tickets. And so I wanted to like have that idea of getting to the Barbie movie first and like having it happen immediately. So I was first thinking like scientists creating a time machine to kind of like get there on the day that it's released. And then for the New Yorker, I thought of that idea, but I like put a little bit of 80s nostalgia in it. So then I changed it to like kind of like back to the future where they're trying to go to the future to see the Barbie movie. (laughs) So like Marty and Doc Brown and the DeLorean. Yeah, yeah. So they're all like sitting (laughs) in the JCPenney parking lot trying to get to the Barbie movie. (laughs) That's funny. It's interesting, though, like that you have to, I guess, get them in by a certain time, but it's it's every day. So that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. For the dailies, it's you have to get the sketches to them before nine o'clock. And then they'll let you know if they like like it or not by 10. And then you have that done by like noon. But the mm-hmm. one that I did for the Barbie was like a, a bonus for the daily. So I didn't have to get that done till two. Okay. No, that's just interesting that it's so fast. I don't know why I thought maybe you would have to like done it the day before or something like that. I think some people do. I'm reckless. <laughs> <laughs> So I see you do like a little bit of everything, you know, book illustration, you know, you do comics, you do animation, you do editorial work. Is there a particular one of these that you prefer to do? I think I prefer to do comics and like publishing like chapter book stuff. I feel like that gives me the most control, but also the most freedom. I feel like when you're usually doing like a comic book, you got to do like 30 something pages and the deadline's pretty tight. But when it comes to like chapter books or whatever, it's a little bit, it's still tight, but it's like not as, <laughs> I don't know, it's not as hard just because like you're just doing one like panel kind of basically versus doing nine panels, trying to like semi tell a story, designing like multiple backgrounds. It's, it's a lot. 
Hmm. I can see how doing it in that sort of controlled format also is just easier on you, probably just on your workload, you know? Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about how you approach a new project. Like, what does your process look like? Does it vary per type? Yeah, it definitely varies per type of project. For anything that's like New Yorker, that's just, I'm just on the subway, jotting down ideas, just in my like notes app. And I'll just like think of jokes, try to connect them. And then from there, I'll like draw a little small thumbnail and then sketch a bigger illustration for that and then send that to the New Yorker. And then like my process for when I'm doing my web comics also starts on my phone. I just like write a joke, describe what's happening in the panels. And then from there, I do a thumbnail and then I finalize it and then like add all the text and stuff. And then for animation, <laughs> usually with this, it, there's only a couple of those that I started from scratch where I like had an original character and original plot. Those started off more, I was in Word and Google Docs instead because it was like longer format and I had to like share it with other people to read, look over, see if they had any notes on the script. And for those, it's like script first and then you start the thumbnails and animating each thing. And so what if you're doing, say, like editorial work or something for the book? Is that process kind of the same? Yeah, editorial is like you'll most of the stuff that I did editorial for was like for men's health. Like they have this section called like cool dads. Mm -hmm. So for that, I would like they would give me the article that like a celeb wrote and then I would read it. And then from there, I would like think about an illustration that like kind of hit the vibe of what the celeb wrote. The latest one I did was for like LeVar Burton. His whole thing was like talking about reading books to his daughter and like giving her the freedom to read and how he like wants to be there for her. And then he also makes like a reference basically to like uh, Harry Potter. So for that, I just drew him in like the garbs with like a wand fighting off the Dementors. Cause in like the article, he talks about how like, his daughter stopped reading because she didn't like the Dementors. He was like, maybe I shouldn't have introduced her to Harry Potter. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> I just like took that vibe and like added it to the illustration. So I would send like three sketches and then the art director over there would like pick which one they think is the best. And then from there, I would like finish and color it and everything. So you kind of have to read a little bit of what it is that you're doing then to make sure that the illustration kind of matches that in some way. Yeah, yeah. With every like editorial or even like the children's book, like you have to read the manuscript and everything first before you can like fully get the gist of it to like kind of sum it up in like whatever illustration, whether it's for a chapter or for an article. Yeah. Last year, I was editor in chief of a print magazine. This was part of the job that I was doing at the time. And our in-house creative director had decided for our first issue that he wanted to also do all the editorial illustrations. And I was like, okay, that's oh, a no. lot. <laughs> but if you want to do it, he also did the cover and everything. I was like, look, more power to you. It was so funny because the way he approached it was like, well, I have an idea of a theme for the whole magazine. And so he just did illustrations based on whatever. And none of them matched the article in any sort of real way. And I'm telling him like, you should probably like try to make sure that the images match what the article is about. Like, you drew a polar bear. This article has nothing to do with polar bears. 
what's the connection for the reader to look at this? He's like, oh, well, the connection is winter because we're publishing the magazine in the winter. And I'm like, huh? No. No, <laughs> that doesn't make any. I mean, yeah, that, that sounds like a little bit of a stretch, but you know, I, I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> well, that's one of us that feels it. I mean, eventually we went. Up, we ended up sort of just going with the concept because we didn't have enough time. But for the second issue, the pieces fit the article, you know, more. And I told him, like, look, read the article and then get started with designing. But he would just like start designing and be like, oh, I have to read the article. I'm like, yes, it would help. Yeah. It would be helpful. So. <laughs> So at least what you're designing matches that in some capacity. So, yeah, yeah, you, you got to read the article. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, how do you approach storytelling through your art? Like, I'm pretty sure it's more than just like in, say, the book illustration, you know, example. It's more than just reading. Like, how do you really approach telling a story through your art? I would like read it, and then I would like try to imagine it in my head, and. Say, for instance, for the J.D. the Kid Barber series that I did for that, it was like reading it. And then the art director would kind of tell me like what they imagined in it. So they were like, oh, this character is like in their room. But it's up to me to add anything else that I wanted to add into it. So I would just try and look up Google images basically to find like what I imagined the school look like. Because like references, it's always great to have. I know sometimes it's like, especially when you're starting out, you want to like not use any references. You're like, I can do this from my head. You can't. I mean, like you can, but like you'll miss the small details that you want to have caught if you right. weren't looking at a reference. So like I would like look at reference, kind of imagine the area and then just try to like imagine the characters just like living and breathing. So like for some of them, I would like add even like small jokes. One of the illustrations, the art director was, oh, he's losing this battle. But, like, everyone has, like, numbers up saying 10 for this guy who's, like, winning. And then for one of those, I, like, drew his friend in there, like, giving him a thumbs up with, like, a two. So, like, everyone has, like, a good rating, except he has, like, a bad rating for the guy. And he's got a thumbs up giving it to the guy being, like, don't worry, I got your back. I try to put in, like, little jokes like that inside the book so, like, kids will see it and, like, notice it. I'm trying to always make an illustration for... I guess, like, the younger me, like, if I was reading it as a kid. Mm. Do you try to, like, add a little something that's just unique to you in each image that you do? If I do try to add anything, I try to add humor. I feel like that's my go-to form of communicating is, like, trying to add a joke Mm -hmm. if I can. Now, we've had a few New Yorker illustrators on the show before, most recently Liz Montague. And I'm curious, how did you get started with doing illustrations for The New Yorker? So I feel like my story is very unique. I have yet to hear anyone else who's had this experience. Okay. Um, basically, I was like tabling at this convention in New York called Mocha Fest, which is like an art festival. And I had like a bunch of like comics that I had done online and like this little short story that I did that was in black and white. And after that weekend, I got a message from Emma, who's like the editor at New Yorker. And she was, oh, do you want to do like a daily shouts? Basically, like, I like your work. And I was wondering if you like want to like try to submit some jokes or a daily shout or anything like that. And so I was like, all right. And then I sent my first batch. And then after that Friday, after I sent it, they were like, oh, yeah, this one is in. And so, like, I sold one the very first time I tried, which was crazy. 
good. I don't know anyone else who's done that. Maybe other people have, but I sold it first immediately. And then the next week, I also submitted some batches and I also sold another one. So I was like feeling Mm. really good. And I was like, all right, I can do this. And then after that, it was 40 weeks of like not selling anything. (laughs) (laughs) So is that usually Uh, like the you said that was sort of unique to you? I'm just curious, like what would a cartoonist normally do if they're trying to get into like the New Yorker? Is there a more typical process? Yeah, there's like uh, submissions that you can do on the website and you can like send them batches that way. And then they'll say you've made it and then you'll get like Emma's email so you can start sending batches to her directly. Sort of like a filtering process before you get like her email. But Mm. I just like got it immediately and then like got one in immediately, which felt good. Then after that, it slowed down a bit, obviously. (laughs) I mean, you're still doing it now. So, I mean, it, it obviously worked out in your favor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is there a particular style that you think, I guess, I guess it probably varies per publication, but like for the New Yorker and not to harp on them specifically, but is there like a particular style that you think they're looking for? For the New Yorker, I think they're looking kind of for something that is sketchy and like has detail, but like not too much. Nothing that will like distract from the joke. Mm-hmm. Basically, just like if you had to jot down a joke with like stick figures in like five minutes, that's kind of the ideal I think like they want in terms of like detail is just not enough stuff that will distract from it. And right. then they like definitely don't want it too cartoony. Which is like, I always feel like myself, maybe sometimes it's too cartoony, but there's like a line where you're like trying to hit where it's not cartoony in the sense that it feels like on a Saturday morning cartoon, but also not cartoony in the way that it feels like it's family guy. You got to hit a perfect, unique, just like sketch style that takes a lot of work, but looks simple. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. So certainly nothing that's like... I don't know, Marvel style, like not a comic book kind of thing. But you yeah, also yeah. wanted to have like some level of expression and polish, as you would say, that doesn't detract from the joke. Yeah. Now, you've worked with, you know, some other big clients as well. Uh, Boom Studios. You mentioned Men's Health earlier. Condé Nast, which is over a bunch of different magazines and such. Is it easier working with bigger clients like those than, say, smaller clients? For sure. I feel like bigger clients, they kind of like have an idea and they kind of like let you be free, especially if they like know your work. So they'll Mm -hmm. be like, all right, I saw your work. I kind of imagine what you can do. If you'll do that, we'll be great. I feel like when it comes to like mom and pop type of clients, it's a little less freeing for the artists in a sense, because I guess like the dollar value that they're spending is it's precious. They're $500 or whatever. And like this thing that you're doing for them, especially if it's like a logo or anything that they're going to use over again for like t-shirts, it's like very important. But because of that and because of how important it is to them, they're sometimes a little overbearing. They'll like overwork an illustration because of having multiple revisions that kind of the artist loses like the more revisions that's happening the artist kind of like loses the spirit sometimes 
if it's 20 revisions to get this logo done, the artist each time is less and less into it. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that like there will be a point where they don't care. Like the artist is always going to care because it's for their portfolio and like their job. Like they want it to be good. It's kind of like a way of like the artist, like helping, not helping themselves, but guarding themselves from being like, because if you're like too personally attached, you'll like get upset about the notes. Right. So you have to be removed. And then the more and more you get notes, the more and more you're like, all right, this is like getting away from my vision. And I'm like trying to see if I can like get what exactly what they're seeing in their head, Mm -hmm. which is not normally something an artist can reproduce is what another person is envisioning. I feel like if I had to do 20 revisions on a design, I would want to fire the client. <laughs> to me, yeah. that, that that feels like the client really doesn't know what they want. And they feel like you're just going to keep iterating on it until it magically appears to them. Like, I mean, I know that's how, you know, we're sort of just pulling that number out of, out of anywhere. But I get what you're saying about the dollar value, which I think is something that's that's really important. You know, a lot of these bigger companies just have the budget to be able to do Bigger types projects, more audacious ideas, et cetera, but then smaller clients, that money has to really go far. And that's not to say that larger clients aren't as invested in the end project, but it just takes on, there's an added gravity to it when it's from a smaller client or for a smaller client, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you discuss any like upcoming projects or collabs that you're excited about? Right now, I don't really have anything coming up, I guess. The only thing I have is like I'm working on a graphic novel and I'm Hmm. trying to pitch to HarperCollins or Coquila to just like uh, get the story that I have in my head off the ground. Okay. I've always wanted to do a graphic novel. I cannot draw, but I I have always, I have had ideas for characters in my head since I was a teenager to put into a graphic novel. And like I've talked about it here on the show before, people probably already know this, but one day I'm going to have like the time and the funds to make it happen. So I hope it works out for you. Yeah. yeah, I, I'm hoping it works out too. <laughs> now I want to get more, you know, into your work and, and your career, but let's learn more about Akeem. Let's learn more about you. Are you originally from New York? No, I am kind of like from everywhere is what I tell everyone. I was born in North Dakota and my mom was in the military, so like I moved around a lot from North Dakota to Alabama to Germany to South Carolina to Texas to Maryland to New York. So a lot of places, but most of my time was like in the South. So I guess I could just like say I'm from the South. <laughs> wow. Did you do a lot of drawing growing up? Yes. I would say that like I started drawing. There's two big reasons I started drawing. So first, I was just doodling. And then in third grade, I won like an award for the state in like South Carolina third place for like this painting I did. Hmm. And that was like a good boost. I was like, oh, wow, this is this is cool. Like I can like draw. But I didn't really like think of anything of it. I was just like, all right, I can doodle. And then in fifth grade, there was this girl that like could draw way better than me. I was crushing. So then (laughs) I would like try to get better to like impress her. Mm. And I think that's kind of my origin story is uh, (laughs) trying to get better to impress a girl. And then I just kept drawing on my own. Did it work? It did not work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) 
ultimately it was for me, you know. <laughs> I, I had someone on the show a couple of episodes ago, Kendall Burton, and he was telling me how he first, he's an art director now, but he was like, oh yeah, I first got into like design and the web because I was making a, a blog on Zanga to try to meet girls. I'm like, does that work? <laughs> Never does. <laughs> <laughs> so you were doing a lot of, you know, drawing and stuff growing up. And I see you went to the University of South Carolina and majored in media arts. Tell me about that time. What was that like? Media arts. Basically, I ended up there because I was very late at applying for colleges and my family had just moved back to South Carolina. So then I just like applied there. And this guy that I met with was like, oh, tell me what you want to do. And I was like telling him that like I probably would like want to do some like animation, like comics and stuff. And so he was the media arts program, which is basically teaching you how to use the Adobe Suite while learning about film, photography, script writing. And so it was like mostly on the film and like photography side. And then like I minored in illustration. So I did like one figure drawing class on my senior year. And one illustration class in my senior year. Do you feel like they really kind of prepared you as an artist? I feel like not in a sense of what I ideally wanted to do, which was basically do animation and stuff like that. Like I didn't have like a student film. I didn't even take the animation course because I never signed up in time. But I guess overall, it kind of helped me be a jack of all trade because Certain things with film and photography and script writing can transfer into illustration. So like having that does help me visualize ideas, but not necessarily in the sense of, okay, you do this and then you you'll have a job immediately after, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, school is interesting in that way. I mean, I I majored in math, so I didn't think oh, when wow. I was graduating, I was going to have actually, no, I mean, I did major in math. That's true. But I had like a scholarship thing lined up with the program that I was in that I was going to work for the government after I graduated. And then that fell through like junior year because of 9-11, it fell through. I was like, oh, I have no plans <laughs> on yeah. what I'm going to do when I graduate. I was working part time at the symphony here in Atlanta selling tickets. And I did that. I think I did that up till I graduated. And I remember when I graduated, they took the calculator away from my kiosk because they were like, well, you have a math degree now. You don't need this. And I'm like, is that supposed to be funny? I mean, I didn't need it, but like <laughs> I didn't have any sort of like career plans lined up after graduation because I thought I was set. Like I really didn't even pursue other companies. I like snuck my resume into other departments, resume books so I could get interviews at places because I was wholly unprepared, like going into senior year for any kind of actual career goals. I was in college just because I was a nerd that liked math. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, that actually sounds very familiar to my story. Like, <laughs> that's basically kind of like how I ended up in New York was my friend got me an internship in New York. And then I did that internship for the summer, but it like kind of like fell through near the end. Mm -hmm. And then I was working at Starbucks in like South Carolina I was like making $9 an hour, but the rent was just like so much. Like most of my money was going towards the rent. Yeah. And then it was like, I think the rent was, I want to say almost like 600, almost 800. 
which is a lot. And then they were like, oh, you could transfer to the Starbucks in New York, which I transferred and I was making like 13. And then the apartment I had up here was 584 with like everything included. So mm-hmm. I was way better off staying in New York. And that's just like how I got here. <laughs> was not <laughs> not planning on like staying. Like I came up for an internship and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go back. But then it just seemed to work out to better for me to just like live here than be in South Carolina, barely making it. I mean, that <laughs> makes sense. And I would say also probably as an artist, I mean, you kind of want to be in like the cultural capital of the country when it comes to experiences and stuff like I would imagine you probably wouldn't have access to the same level of experiences in South Carolina that you would in New York city. You know, I mean, I feel like, okay. So when I was going to college there, there was like this rumor that actually a bunch of comic artists actually lives in South Carolina, which like might be true, but I just like never met anyone. (laughs) If I recall, and this was years ago when I interviewed him, Sanford Green, who's like, mm-hmm. I know he's done stuff for Marvel, for DC, like pretty prolific visual artist. Lives yeah. in South Carolina. He lives in South Carolina. Oh, word. Yeah, he went to Benedict. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I guess, <laughs> look, I guess South Carolina, like, is the home for the comic artists, but I just could not find, like, that community at all. But comic artists, like, tends to be homebodies. So it's just, you would never really see them. Yeah. I mean, I'd imagine, yeah, it's probably not, you know, there's no collective or something like that. It's probably, like I would say, it's probably just easier in New York because of availability and just the cultural atmosphere of the city. Like, you know, I came from a small town in Alabama, and if I would have stayed there after I graduated high school, I know I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now because there was no kind of technology or design or anything you either got married got into the church or maybe worked a factory job like not a lot of options yeah yeah yeah. i mean that's not endemic of the south but just in particular like your environment can help out you know no no i hear you i have a i have a bunch of family from alabama yeah so one of your your early career gigs, you were at this place called Idea Machine Studio, where you worked as an animator. Talk to me about that. Okay, so crazy with that was one of my friends came up and he was like doing photography. I was like still working at Starbucks at this time. And he was like, oh, there's an animation studio just like here. Do you want to apply? Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, we possibly could like work in the same building, whatever. So I applied and then like I got the job and uh, then that same day, like my friend got fired from whatever company he was working at in the building. So it's like (laughs) we didn't get to work together, but uh, he did help me get this job by seeing it. And then at that same time, I was like still working at Starbucks, which I worked that job while also doing Starbucks for like a year and a half, just doing both of them. Wow. Yeah. And like at Starbucks, I had just became like a shift manager. I would only like work like two or three days a week. Mm-hmm. But like it was weird because I'd be in charge. <laughs> so it's like. But you were able to kind of juggle, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I was able to juggle it, but it was surreal once I think about it, just like how many hours I was working. It was a lot. <laughs> how was Idea Machine Studio? Like, how was it? Was that kind of your first studio experience? 
Yeah, that was my first studio experience. That one, it was a little more, I guess, in a sense, it kind of like trained me, kind of gave me like the animation class kind of a sense. Because uh-huh. I went in there like knowing some stuff, but like not really knowing like the 12 principles of animation or anything like that. Just like what I saw online. And so most of the stuff that I did for them was kind of like uh, whiteboard explainer videos. Okay. It was like for pharmaceutical companies that like had this idea, but wanted it to be explained in like a simple way. That's what we did for them. There was like tiny stuff that you can animate. And then I would push it every once in a while to like try and get better at my animation chops and like my graphic design skills. I guess in a sense like that job kind of like trained me. But it was very reluctantly because like <laughs> the guy who like runs the company was I was like trying to get better at art. And he was like, you don't need to get better at drawing. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> 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 so then I just like kept pushing and like doing my web comic on the side was also something I did just work on my skills and like progress my abilities to like draw and stuff like that was just doing that weekly in order to force myself to like put something out consistently and like have a foundation. Yeah. So you were doing this kind of freelance work or doing your own work, at least as well as doing this nine to five. How did you balance that? I did not sleep a lot is how I balanced that. (laughs) Basically (laughs) I would like work during the day. If I had a Starbucks shift, maybe it was like two or three hours So I like work nine to five and then I would walk over to the Starbucks. I just like happened to be super close to this company and then work like four hours there and then like come back home, which the commute was good. It was like 30 minutes, not that bad, Mm -hmm. especially for New York. And then work on my freelance stuff. And then that started again in the morning. It was a lot. (laughs) It's amazing the stuff that we pull off when we're younger just to try to like get that i don't know i guess you just have all that youthful energy you can get it done like nowadays absolutely not i'm in bed at a certain hour (laughs) like i'm not staying up pulling all diners anymore but but no i I get what you're saying like it it takes a lot to try to make sure you're doing all of these things because of course you're doing what you have to do to you know pay your bills and whatever but you're also establishing yourself during this time like doing your own thing which i think is is super important it's something i tell a lot of designers that come on the show especially ones that just start off like have something on the side that's like just your own thing you know you can still do what you have to do to get involved with your career at your workplace but like have something that's just yours yeah yeah now after you worked at idea machine you ended up at another studio called holler where you were their associate animation director was that a a big shift from your work at idea machine Yeah, that was a big shift. So one of the main things I like, the reason I left Idea Machine was first I wanted to like grow as an artist. And then the second thing was that they were in Brooklyn and then they were moving the company to like New Jersey. And I was like, I don't want to step foot in New Jersey. No offense to New Jersey, but I was just like, I live in Brooklyn. The commute (laughs) is crazy. Getting on the path just to get there. Like I can't. I absolutely can't do it. So this is around the same time that the New Yorker reached out to me. And then this company reached out to me and they were like, hey, do you like want to do like a test for us? And so like I did a test for them. I had like my Cintiq and everything all set up. 
and then my Cintiq broke that weekend. Oh. And, and I had to, <laughs> I had to use the bamboo, which like kind of is still like a drawing tablet, but like just doesn't have a screen. So like I had to use like my bamboo Inros tablet and like finish that animation for them, which is like a quick reaction gif that was like three seconds long. So I did that over the weekend and they liked it. And then I started working there and the culture was very different. Idea Machines culture was kind of like you were doing like a student project. You would have art director, they would like help you, but like not with any direction. Like the art direction was purely up to the animator. Like the way that it looked was purely up to the animator. Like the client would give notes, but it wasn't like I had to follow a guide. Like I was the guide. So it was mm-hmm. like everything I did at Idea Machine from like the music to like audio, sound effects and all of that, compositing there, we did, it was a one shop stop for like one artist on each video. It wasn't like working as a team, really. It was kind of one guy is doing this and like if they need help with the animation, they'll like ask you. But it wasn't anything that was ever felt like a cohesive team effort where everyone's like trying to draw in the same style or anything like that. Mm. So it, it seems like it was definitely just a, a ramp up in terms of responsibility though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for Holler, when I first started, I was like just doing little three second gifts and there would be like client stuff and then we'll like work on those. And then later on I started like directing some shorts that they did Right before I left, there was one called like Akimi-chan Isn't Magical, which is like an idea that I had, which was like a play on like magical schoolgirls trying to do like a bunch of like anime inside jokes kind of stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. like I was writing the script for that and then like guiding the people that was working with me of like how I wanted it to look and like fleshing out storyboards and like having more of a like a commanding role, which felt good, which kind of led to like my newest role is sort of still doing that. And it was like kind of a stepping stone of becoming in charge, like taking a step back and like letting people do their things, but also helping them like grow. Hmm. I would imagine even with that, it's sort of helping you out in your, in your freelance. Cause you were still freelancing also during this time, right? With Holler. Yeah. yeah. When Holler, I was still freelancing like the beginning of 2020, like in January, 2020, like I got a call from, Coquila being like, hey, do you like want to like work on this book? And I was like, this name looks familiar because I was like looking at the art director's name. And then I like looked it up and it was like the same art director for like Hair Love, which like I loved Hair Love. It was great. They just had that short come out. It was beautiful with like uh, Matthew H. Harry. And I was wow, like I would love to work with them. So like I reached out to them and then I was like getting started. I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this with the commute, but I'm going to try and make it happen. Then, of course, you know, the pandemic happened. (laughs) So it like made it a little easier for me to like finish my day job and then like jump straight to my freelance. And from there, I would every day I was like doing illustrations from like 930 at night to like two o'clock in the morning. Wow. Just to like get those things done. And it was uh, it was a lot. Yeah. But I mean, I would imagine, you know, it changed the way you work freelance, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Freelance before, I felt like was more if I felt like I had the energy to do it, I'd do it. Mm -hmm. But with the book, it was like, all right, 
you got to get these pages done. You got to get these multiple books done. You kind of like have to treat this like now, like a full time job, like where you clock in. And I was like, all right, my clock in time is nine thirty at night to two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You get into doing it. You kind of time box your schedule. It sort of helps out, especially if you're doing it on a regular basis. Yeah. Now, something that, you know, I've seen at least over the past decade that I've done this show, but I'd say probably prior to that as well, you started to see a really big increase of black artistic talent, you know, visual artistic talent specifically, cartoons, animation, fine art, like you mentioned, Hair Love from Matthew A. Cherry. No relation, I think. <laughs> I think. I don't know. Any genealogists out there want to dive into that? I'm more than than welcome. But... When I see all of this, you know, I also end up seeing this question about representation, like that always seems to come up, you know, which I think is kind of unfair, you know, that if you're a black artist, that you have to like represent your community through your work. Like, I think it's up to the individual artist what they choose to do. Is that something that you feel like you have to do through your work? Do Have you gotten that kind of, I don't know, sense of, I don't even want to say responsibility, but have you gotten that say, from other people, from clients, et cetera? Yeah, I would say, like, there is a little bit of that. And there's, like, for instance, when I first started at Holler, I was one of the only, like, two Black people there that was, like, the artist and Black people in general. But one of the things I did when I started there was, like, I didn't want to get pigeonholed as, like, the guy who you only come to for, like, Black stuff, right? Yeah. That I immediately just like did not draw. <laughs> I drew like animal characters that like I knew were black or like Mother Earth was a character that like had an afro, but like I knew she was black. Mm-hmm. But it was like I didn't do anything that was like explicitly black because I didn't want to get pigeonholed with my comic stuff. It's slice of life. But there are times that I do stuff that is political, but those are like very few and far between. And then like my main stance on that is just. I want my webcomic to, it's like, there's a bunch of like webcomics out there where it's just nothing really happens. It's just like couples chilling and like, that's it. And I was like, this webcomic, I'm doing it to show that, you know, black people are normal. This mm-hmm. is my every day. This is like slice of life. There's like nothing big going on. No overarching villain. It's just, this is just a black guy chilling. <laughs> like... <laughs> here's a look into this. It's not what you normally expect. I feel like there's that. And then sometimes if there's like bigger issues, I'll just like bleed over that. I'm just like, I have to address this. I will. Mm-hmm. But most of it, I'm just the way that I'm thinking of representation is just like, Hey, I'm just a normal guy on the internet. This is what a normal black dude is doing. Yeah. You know, chilling. Yeah. I like that. And I'm glad you, you sort of framed it in that way. You know, it's interesting. Even, after doing this show for as long as I've done it, people will only think black designers come in one specific type. And I mean, that can be whatever that type is, is what that type is. But I say that to say that there's a lot of variety in what people might think might just be a monolithic set. And, you know, one thing I've tried to do with the show is like, yeah, I have designers, but I've got, you know, cartoonists and illustrators i have i've had footwear designers on the show i've had the software developers on the show so i try to make it pretty diverse in general just to give a sense of like what we're doing out here in terms of creativity in this kind of digital age so 
I'm glad that you framed it in that way. I think that's that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, that was also one of the things when I did like the JD, the Kid Barber books was the reason I like worked so many hours on it was because like, I really wanted the illustrations to kind of have like an angelic feel or like magical feeling and like to have like there be depth and like the black character skin. So it wasn't just a gray tone because it was on black and white, but it wasn't just like a gray tone for the skin and like no light. I like made sure that there was like an airbrush. I like showed the details of black skin. So like when a black kid opens it up, they're like, Oh, my skin is beautiful. Like I made sure like the skin like popped Mm -hmm. and like, that's what I was like. That was another way of what I was thinking of representation, but not in the sense of, Oh, this stands for something, but just like in the subtle way of like a kid opening a book and seeing that black is beautiful. Yeah. Who are some artists or illustrators that have influenced your work? I got the classic, like Calvin and Hobbes, loved the Garfield, loved Boondocks. Maybe it wasn't age appropriate for me to be watching it when I was, but I did love the Boondocks. <laughs> <laughs> Strong anime influence, just a bunch of stuff. Like even speaking of the Boondocks, like when I was like in college, I think this guy is named Carl Jones. Like he worked on the Boondocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was like in Columbia, South Carolina for something. I don't know what he was there for. And he saw my sketchbook. He was like, oh, let me look at this. Right. And then like he looked at it and he was like, you got some good ideas here, but you really need to work on your fundamentals. From there, I just started working on my fundamentals like crazy, (laughs) which like I reached out to him and I like told him that. And he was like, wow. And then that was it. That was the last we talked. But he was like, wow, thanks. And then he like yeah. started following me on Instagram. And I was like, all right, cool. No, it, that's so interesting. Early, I wouldn't even say this wasn't even in my career. And I, I, I keep sort of making these parallels because you're saying some things that like line up directly with some experiences that I've had. This was the year. God, I sound so old. This was like 2000, I want to say. 99, 2000, maybe, but I was palling around on the internet. This was back when Yahoo used to be a big destination on the web for a lot of people. Yeah, like yeah. it had, it had <laughs> chat, it had games. I mean, ask any elder millennial about Yahoo spades and they will, they will spin you a tale. Okay. But <laughs> Yahoo had a lot of these like user groups that you could just like join or whatever, very similar to like a, I guess a forum or something like that. And they had one around black comic books. It was just called like black comics. And when I tell you the creme de la creme of black comic artists at the time were in there, I'm talking Dennis Cowan. I'm talking Dwayne McDuffie. Dwayne McDuffie actually gave me a critique on a comic book idea that I had. I was like, yeah, I want to make this comic book about these like, they're ninjas, but they're black. And I'm, and I'm going to call it Black Ninjas. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can laugh about it now. This is terrible. He's like, this is just, oh, no. you've just taken Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I love. You've just taken Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and like mapped their direct characteristics onto black people. He's like, you have, to, if you want to make something that's your own, you really have to like make it your own. You can't just copy from what someone else has done. That has stuck with me. I mean, I've certainly taken that advice with other projects and things that I've done, but this was, you know, way back in the day. It's amazing how even just like those kind of little comments that you get from someone that has been where you're trying to go can help just like set you in the right direction. That kind of like indirect mentorship in a way. Yeah. 
What advice would you give to any like aspiring artists out there that are just starting out in the industry? Like, what would you tell them? Work on your fundamentals, but also when you're doing contracts, there's a couple of things you need to make sure you have, which is a kill fee. If you finish an illustration, no matter how much percentage of it, they'll still pay you what they said they'll pay you. Because that way, like, even if they're like, oh, you finished this illustration and then they're like, actually, we actually don't want to do the project anymore. If you have a kill fee, that'll be like, hey, I finished 100% of this project, pay me 100% of the project. Mm -hmm. So like, no matter what, like, they still have to pay, which is like important. And then make sure you have a limited number of revisions. I like to do three revisions. And then if a client goes over that, like, they pay for that. So like... You get these three revisions and then anything else they pay for it. That allows the client to like think about it. Cause I feel like if it's unlimited revisions, the client is just going to keep like being like, Oh, what if this was pink? What if this was blue? What if this was like orange? If you're just like, Hey, you have three revisions that kind of like nitpicky like stuff with the client. They're not going to do because they're like, okay, these are important. Let me actually think about it. Like, Oh, can I just imagine that color and like blue or whatever versus like asking the illustrator or artist to like do it for them. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I would say also save 30% of whatever you get for freelance for taxes, because you do not want to get caught with your pants down. (laughs) Are you speaking from personal experience there? No, I was able to, I was able to catch it. I didn't, I didn't let that happen to me, but (laughs) I'm always worried. I'm always like trying to save just in case I don't, I don't want to end up like having to pay too much in taxes and like, don't have any money in my account. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. How do you stay inspired and motivated in what you do? Like, I'm curious, like, do you handle, like, how do you handle burnout or, or any sort of periods of low motivation? How do you get through that? That I feel like whenever I'm like in a funk, especially when I'm like drawing stuff, I kind of just doodle a comfort character, which for me is like, I love Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, Sonic 1 was like one of the first games I ever played. I always draw Sonic and it it helps me get out of the funk because I feel like the funk you're usually in is just because you're progressing in your mind, but you haven't like kind of caught up to your hand yet. So you're like, oh, this is looking bad because I know my taste is like a lot better in my head and I can like, I can visualize it, but I'm like, my mind, my body hasn't like quite gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you have a comfort character, that kind of helps you like put things in perspective, I guess. Like for me, it's Sonic, which whenever I'm feeling like out of it, I'll just like doodle a little Sonic and I'll be like, hey, this was better than what I did before. That keeps me motivated. And I always like try to measure myself only to myself like yeah there's going to be like artists and stuff that you like look up to but make sure you just look at how you are progressing so that way you don't lose motivation in drawing because if you're like drawing and then you like see another person who just like draws something like straight out of the air and it's like perfect and beautiful and you're like man i can't do that you just gotta like slowly keep working and just like just look at yourself and be like hey i'm slightly better than what i was the other day and just like keep going Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? I love to, like, have this graphic novel come out and then continue doing stuff in publishing. Because right now, my, like, my job is 
designing like book covers. Mm-hmm. So like I don't do like the illustration or anything in that. Like I just do like the like layout, the the fonts and everything. Yeah. And I feel like that has been a like little freeing in order to like look at the process, but also like pick other artists that would like be good for a work or a job or something like that. I guess like give them the opportunity to show themselves. I mean, I think designing book covers certainly is a, that seems pretty cool. Like I've seen awards go to just book covers in terms of design and everything. So that's a pretty cool gig to have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm liking it so far. Only three weeks in though, but it's good right now. Nice. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? You can find out more about me at akeemteam.com and everything pretty much at akeemteam, which ironically, that is just like an AIM username I made back up in middle school and I just kept it. And now it's yours. It's it's yours <laughs> <Yeah>. forever. <laughs> All right. Sounds good, man. Akeem Roberts, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for, I think, like demystifying a little bit about what it's like to be a working freelance artist. I think what's probably the most important thing that I gathered just from this conversation and from your story is that this wasn't an overnight success. Like you always sort of had this gift for drawing and then you cultivated that through college and then through your additional like work experiences but then you were also freelancing and like now you're doing cartoons in the new yorker and you're designing book covers and stuff like that it's all a process like you've you've managed to continue to build your skills up at every step of the way and i think that's something that for most people particularly for most people i think that are listening it's just an important thing to know that like success doesn't come overnight and you've really kind of worked hard to make a name for yourself. I'm excited to see what else comes out from you in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. Big, big thanks to Akeem Roberts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Akeem and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, hey, let us know. We're on Instagram and we're on Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Or you could follow us on Spotify. You could follow us on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Always love those. Or you can leave us a voicemail message. We have a hotline, 626-603-0310. We'd love to hear from you. 
As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.